My prediction is Bitcoin will be 213% higher a year from now. That puts it at 200,000 a year from now. And I know it sounds crazy, but I, I think it's likely to happen. Hello there from Bedford in the United Kingdom, the Bitcoin mecca of the world. How are you all doing? Did you survive the drop this week? Did you get shaken out or did you hold firm? I think things are looking pretty strong right now. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And if you could tell from the intro, if you knew who that was, that was Pantera, that was Mouth for War, means only one thing. It means I've got Dan Moorhead back on the show. And we had so many interviews lined up right now, probably bull market stuff that we're probably going to have to release a show every day this week. Sorry about that. I hope you get to listen to all of them because they're all going to be bangers. But before we get into this interview, I have a message from my show sponsors. And we're going to kick off today with Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I've been a Ledger user since back in early 2017 when I was getting into Bitcoin and people were like, not your keys, not your Bitcoin, you need a wallet solution. And Ledger was the first hardware wallet I bought. I'm still using the Nano S I bought back then today. Now, Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces directly with your device. And if you want to connect your Nano S to an Android phone, you can do that and manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. And next up, it's Gemini, my new exchange sponsor, who I'm using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. But I haven't sold any Bitcoin with them, right? Why would I be selling? We're in a bull market. Nobody sells their shit in a bull market, do they? We're all hodlers. And I have been using the Gemini app for two things. Firstly, I am buying the dips. I learned this from the last bull market. you got to buy those dips. But I've also set up my DCA, so twice a month, I am buying Bitcoin on the regular. And I'm yet to see an easier interface for buying Bitcoin, so you do want to check out the Gemini app. Also, massive shout-out to Cameron and Tyler for supporting the show. We're going to be working together very closely to do some cool things for Bitcoin. I appreciate them. I appreciate the Gemini team. But if you want to check them out, please do head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com. And also, let's talk about BlockFi the future of Bitcoin and financial services, offering a number of products for Bitcoiners. So with the BlockFi interest account, you can earn yield on your Bitcoin. I've been a customer of theirs, using their interest accounts for nearly two years now, letting my Bitcoin work for me. Also, with a Bitcoin-backed loan, you can now borrow against your Bitcoin without selling. And if you want to register for the BlockFi credit card, which launches imminently, you will be able to earn 1.5% rewards back on all card purchases. If you are interested in checking BlockFi out, I recommend you do your own research, then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Okay, on to the show today, and I am joined by veteran investor and co-founder and CEO of Pantera, Dan Moorhead. Now, Dan has been on the show a couple of times before, but this one is one I've been trying to line up for a little while now, as Pantera have set a monthly price target that's been running since May last year, and in the last few months it's been super accurate. They predicted 45k in February, 52k in March, 63k in April, all of which that have pretty much hit, nailed on, on time. And the good news is they're not expecting it to slow down anytime soon. And they have set a price target of $115,000 per Bitcoin by August. So I asked Dan to come on and go through their models, what he believes is driving the price and his Bitcoin thesis. I do like talking to Dan. Also, it's just the name Pantera. Takes me back to my childhood. Massive Pantera fan. Now, if you enjoy this one, make sure you go back and check out the other previous shows he's been on. They were episodes 211 and 279 with Novo. If you've got any questions or feedback, you know you can reach out to me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, make sure you go and check out yesterday's show with Pete Rizzo, The Last Day of Satoshi. Apart from that, I was going to say I'll see you all later in the week, but I'm going to see you tomorrow. It's going to be a busy week. Love you all. Hope you enjoy the show. Dan, how are you, man? Good to see you again. Great. Thanks for having me on. Uh, quick quiz. One question. Do you remember the price of Bitcoin last time we spoke? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I don't because I get a little fuzzy on it, but it was probably uh, 32000 No way, man. It's way less. We spoke on November the 11th the last time. Oh, yeah. 16, that, I love that. $16,000. That is great. Uh, yeah. And since then, we've gone up to 64000 We've dipped under fifty today. It's been a pretty wild ride, man. How, how are you taking it all in? 
What do you make of it all? Oh, it's good. Yeah, you know, it, it adds for excitement. But, you know, we're on a 20-year journey here. And Bitcoin does go up on average 213% a year. And sometimes it goes up a lot. And sometimes it goes down 20%. But, uh, you know, it's just part of, the, it's part of the process. It's a young technology. It's going to be uh, somewhat volatile. Yeah. Well, listen, I was reading your update recently. I get your excellent updates uh, from Pantera Capital. And you set a summer price target of $115,000 for Bitcoin. Uh, so I want to ask a few questions about that first. Is that, uh, is that price target still on, do you think? Oh, it is. It is. And that was set, actually not recently, that was set a year ago in our April 2020 letter, uh, based on the halvings. And you know, we're right on track and we've actually been on track almost every month since we published that. So I still feel rock solid on that. Right. So I want to ask a couple of specific questions because you said the summer. So we said anything, what, from June to August? Yeah, we originally forecast August 1st if we want to get really specific. Okay. I, I'm just, you know, saying, well, it's still kind of sunny and warm in the Northern Hemisphere. If it hits 115, I'm going to be pretty psyched about that. So, so how did you build this target? How, how do you guys come up with this? Yeah, so I think this is really important. Um, the having, you know, as all your viewers know, every four years they cut the number of Bitcoin that are issued in half. And obviously, if you cut the supply of something, it goes up. And we've seen that in the commodities market. I used to be at Tiger Management where we traded all kinds of really interesting commodities. And we'd always study, you know, the production rate of mines and if mines were being shut in and, or there was some kind of labor disturbance and mines couldn't operate. If you cut the supply... In mining, the price of the metal goes up, and that seems logical, and it actually happens in Bitcoin. Uh, we've had two halvings prior to this one, 2012 and 2016. So the first halving was actually massive because Bitcoin had only been around for four years, there were very few Bitcoins outstanding. And in our study of halvings, the trough before uh, the halving is about 415 days, something like that. Uh, before the halving, and then the peak is about the same distance after the halving. So the whole thing is about a two and a half year period. And in those um, previous halvings, the first one, there was a, a cut of 15% of the outstanding stock of Bitcoin's reduction for the next 400 day period. So it was actually you know, a very large reduction in supply relative to the amount that was outstanding or in float. And it had a massive impact on the price. The second having in 2016, obviously, was half as big in terms of the number of Bitcoins that were cut out. But there was also quite a bit more Bitcoins in circulation. So the reduction in supply for that going forward 400-day period was about 5% of the outstanding. So it was about one-third as big of an impact uh, on the supply. And potentially, not coincidentally, the impact on the price was exactly one-third as big. The price went up a lot, but... Uh, a third as much as the first time. So when we analyzed it in August or April last year, this having obviously half as big a reduction in the number of Bitcoin, and then there's even more Bitcoins outstanding. So it's taking out about 2% of the original or existing stock of Bitcoins out of the supply. So we used all those ratios you know, in very precise detail to then forecast the impact it would have on price this time. And we forecast the price would go up a little over uh, 10x, which I know in the normal market sounds totally ludicrous, but Bitcoin goes up 10x every two years anyway. So doing it through this halving didn't seem uh, hard to do. So when Bitcoin was about 8,000, we published a table, which is a forecast of each month, the price of Bitcoin. And for a while, Bitcoin is a little behind the curve. For a while, it's a little ahead of the curve. And then last week, uh, we had forecast that Bitcoin would hit $62,968, and it hit it that week right on time, which is pretty well. Obviously, we've had a setback, but I still think it's highly likely that we hit something like 115000 this summer. Yeah, I've got your table here, and you kind of uh, you measure the weeks ahead, and uh, I've got it here, where is it, by the 15th of April, you had it down at sixty two, sixty three thousand. 63000 uh, and then the 15th of May, you've got it at 74. So maybe we're just having that dip before we run up to 74. Yeah, and, you know, as I mentioned, you know, there's times in the last eight months that it was a little ahead of pace. There's some times it's a little behind pace. And so 
it's not like a Swiss watch that, you know, you can't expect to hit each date on time like it did last week. But um, I just think it's way more than a 50% chance Bitcoin's going to be a lot higher in the end of the summer. Yeah. Do you, do you just accept these dips like a lot of the hardened hodlers? You're just seeing them, eh, whatever, it is what it is. Or are you trying to read into the data? Because there's lots of things happening. For example, I mean, I just saw the announcement of potential Biden capital gains tax increases. Do you look at things like that? Do you think that's affecting it? Or do you just think it's just Bitcoin doing its thing? Oh, uh, we do. Um, we have three different kinds of hedge funds. One is a Bitcoin fund. So it's mm-hmm. just a passive tracker. And that one, obviously, we don't do anything other than trying to execute efficiently when new investors come in or people want to go out. But our other two hedge funds do have discretion. So we're trading early stage tokens. And then we have a fund that invest in liquid tokens. And in those, we are trying to you know, maximize return over time. And so uh, we do try and catch these downdrafts. This one, we didn't catch. The one in February, we actually got uh, perfectly right. Um, it peaked you know, maybe around February 20th or so. It took about 20% of our risk off. The markets came down 27%, and then we put uh, our risk fully back on. And so we're trying to add value that way. And we've seen it in the returns. Our... Um, you know, Bitcoin's up uh, about 100% year to date, and our liquid token funds up 320% year to date, and our early stage funds up 360. So we're we're trying to add alpha uh, through active management. But the punchline is, we think 10 years from now, Bitcoin's going to be you know orders of magnitude higher. So you know, we're not trying to be too cute. Right. Okay. So. With your Bitcoin fund, you don't actually actively trade that at all. So even, I mean, like I'm, I'm looking, you know, it's sometimes this big, these Bitcoin cycles become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking to people, they're saying, well, when are you going to sell some? What price are you going to sell? Uh, is it going to be the end of the bull market in December or January like last time? Are you going to sell then? And I, I don't, sometimes I can think, oh, perhaps I could take a little bit off the table then, but I would hate to get something wrong and then four years' time have less Bitcoin than I had. I don't mind not so much not having more, but I'd hate to have less. Yeah, I think that's the thing most people have learned is that for something that triples every year on average for 10 years in a row, it's hard to be flat or, you know, God forbid, short, you know, for very long periods of time. And, you know, we, we do reduce risk, um, you know, for weeks at a time. I remember last March when the impacts of the virus were just, you know, becoming apparent, we, you know, we took risk down, we thought it was prudent, but within a few weeks, you know, we had decided that the monetary stimulus that was going to come out of the reaction to the virus would be massive and would be unambiguously positive for cryptocurrency. So we went back to, you know, 100% long. So, you know, we do only take risk down for periods of, of you know, weeks rather than months or years. No, okay. Well, listen, Dan, one of my favorite quotes of yours pretty sure it's yours, was uh, Bitcoin was born in a financial crisis and it's coming of age is this one. I probably haven't got that word for word correct. But, no, uh, no, that's it. And I, that, I believe that, that very strongly. Yeah, well, so how are you assessing the the crisis we're in at the moment? Because it's very different from 2008. 2008, it, you know, it felt like a gradually and then suddenly the, the economy started to collapse around us. Banks were collapsing and the crisis just kind of happened. It felt like to someone like me, it just kind of happened overnight. I wasn't prepared for it in any way. Suddenly, the you know, yeah. this massive event happened. Um, but it, this feels slightly different. And I don't know if it's because I'm involved in Bitcoin and everybody else is sleepwalking, but I feel like if there is a crisis, we're, we're already in the crisis. It's, we're seeing it unwind in front of us. How, how do you feel about it? Oh, yeah. So it is important to remember that Satoshi created... Bitcoin in response to the 2008 financial crisis. And the Genesis block quotes the Times of London's headline about a bank bailout that was really pissing Satoshi off. And it's incredibly quaint to think about how small that bailout was. It was 50 billion pounds. The United States prints that amount of money every four days now. And to some extent, that's the reason, you know, uh, this, the economic impact of this virus is not as large as the uh, economic impact 2008-2009. That took uh, about three years for GDP to recover its pre-crisis level. Obviously, it's really hard on workers all around the world. This one, you know, frankly, it's just all the cracks are being papered over with paper money. And 
the amount of money is staggering. In June, the United States started printing more money each month than it did in the first 200 years of our country's existence. That, that papers over a lot of cracks. So, um, you know, that I would say that's why this one doesn't feel as economically severe. Obviously, it's, you know, there's a lot of psychological trauma from the virus, but the U.S. will probably attain its uh, prior GDP level much quicker than it did in 2008, 2009. And, and part of it is, you know, you're saying banks were failing, companies were failing. You know, uh, companies aren't allowed to fail anymore, even mm-hmm. you know, airlines and all these types of industries, which could have or would have failed, are being bailed out by the government. And, you know, if Satoshi were active today, you could imagine he or she would be even more pissed off about airline bailouts than he was about bank bailouts. Yeah, it's a tricky one on uh, on the airlines because I wonder at the start of the crisis whether they felt like it would be a shorter crisis than they imagined, and these furlough schemes were something they would be having to run for maybe you know, a handful of months, and here we are a year later, we're still in the midst of it, and I, I sometimes wonder if they feel like, well, we've gone this far, we might as well carry on. Feels very feels a little bit tricky to have printed all this money and then to turn around and you know a year later and say, okay, fail. Although I think some of them will fail anyway. I mean, I look at something like British Airways, I, I have no idea how they are surviving as an airline right now. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, sweet capitalism works. Shareholders take a lot of risk and get a lot of upside and occasionally, uh, you know, have their investments recapitalized, basically. Well, why do you think they're not letting them fail, though? Oh, you know, it's just arbitrary. And, you know, I picked that at random. Um, you know, tons and tons of small businesses are being allowed to fail and all mm-hmm. these mom and pop shops and mom and pop restaurants. So it is, it's, you know, it's totally arbitrary which industries the government chooses to favor and which ones they let fail. But do you think that's to protect the stock market? Oh, uh, yeah. And it's done a great job, right? <clears throat> the, if you would have told me a year ago that we're going to have a global depression and the corporate earnings were going to be down 17% and the S&P would hit a new high, I'd say, huh. That seems very unlikely. And the only way <laughs> it could possibly happen is if you printed, you know, literally trillions of dollars of new pieces of paper money is the only reason uh, stocks are up. And one point to make is it's not really that stocks are up and gold's up and Bitcoin's up and S&P uh, 500 and soybeans and corn. They're not all up. I mean, the better perspective is paper money is down. Everything else is kind of holding steady. Right. So, are you? But are you accounting for that when you're running your numbers internally at Pantera? Well, yeah, it's a huge part of uh, the impetus for this rally here. Um, obviously, we've been advocating for cryptocurrency for eight years, so um, you know we've been very bullish on the technology and how it's going to disrupt a bunch of legacy businesses. But the pandemic really is the thing that that kicked it into a whole new gear. Yeah, it's it's a really it's a really tricky one because. I, I feel like I feel like a lot of people don't really truly understand inflation. I feel like it's misunderstood by a lot of people. I feel like certainly amongst my groups of friends, they feel like inflation is one of those things they've always heard about as a natural part of a growing economy. They don't see it as anything sinister. Do you feel like there is that confusion around inflation? Oh, there is um, for a couple of reasons. One is there's inflation in different types, and not all inflation is the same. So the governments often measure a basket of consumer goods, like in the U.S., they have the CPI. Mm-hmm. That is all stuff that's quantitatively easable. So flat-screen TVs or flip-flops or all the things in the CPI basket, you can make an infinite quantity of them, and there's a lot of slack in the global economy. So I don't think you're going to see inflation in consumer goods like that. But you're seeing massive inflation in hard assets. So real estate or gold or Bitcoin, you know, anything that's not quantitatively easable has, is having massive inflation. And so, you know, to your friends, it depends on what they're looking at. If they're trying to buy a, a new flat in London, they probably see a ton of inflation. Mm-hmm. If they're trying to buy some flip-flops, they don't. So uh, inflation is essentially in the eye of the beholder. And in the 70s, Milton Friedman was famous for saying inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And I love that line today because that's really what's happening is enormous amounts of monetary stimulus is being created and it's creating inflation 
in hard assets. I've, I've got that quote straight in front of me here in my notes. Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon in the sense that it, can, it is and can be produced only by a more rapid increase in the quantity of money than in output. But that, it, just, it must mean that just, so what, the, the, the government is incentivized to have a kind of bullshit version, calculation of inflation to protect their money printing. Is it that sinister? Well, you know, I don't think it's, I, I wouldn't say it's bullshit. You know, they're trying to measure uh, the cost that a consumer encounters in buying the things, you know, that they, they consume each day. But they're not explicitly trying to hold down the price of other things like stocks or real estate. And uh, throughout history, you've seen governments have been very eager to protect homeowners and stockholders. You know, those mm. are two minority groups. Well. Homeowners is a majority group, but uh, stockholders is a minority group. Those are groups that the government's always very eager to protect. And there used to be a term, the Greenspan put, that anytime either of those two groups got a boo-boo, uh, the Fed would cut interest rates. And you know that is is very true. You know, people on a fixed income or renting, you know, are not being served by those policies. But there is a, a very clear desire to have the stock market go up, to have the real estate markets go up. Uh, and you see that reflected, you know, in the quantity of money that's being printed right now. But it, it's, a, it's a bit tricky because it, it makes for certain groups of people getting on the housing ladder a lot more difficult if the price of houses is accelerating away from people. So it just feels like that basket of assets, you know, it may be something that uh, you can calculate that's useful for the standard family's weekly outgoings, but it doesn't feel like a true re- you know, reflection upon what is really happening. Oh, I agree. You know, 35% of Americans rent. So they are not being advantaged by all this money that's being printed that's driving up the price of real estate. So where's it all in, Dan? A lot of people are bringing out um, copies of the uh, When Money Dies book about the Weimar Republic, what happened there. And, and I've read the book and I... And I, I try to imagine, so I think, well, that can't happen now in the United States or in Europe or in the UK. Um, so <clears throat> on that point, it happens more slowly, right? So all those great photos of the Weimar Republic with the you know, kid in a wheelbarrow and money going to buy a loaf of bread, right? But it does happen, and it happens kind of imperceptibly. Your own currency is the oldest currency on earth, uh, but it is connected to a pound of sterling silver for a reason. It used to be exchangeable for a pound of sterling silver. Used to be. They have now printed so many pieces of paper uh, pounds that it takes 184 pieces of paper pounds to buy a pound of sterling silver these days. So although you don't, you know, the average person in the United Kingdom doesn't notice their currency being debased, it is being debased. And obviously, it's not happening at the same rate as you know countries like Venezuela or Zimbabwe, but it is definitely happening. And the U.S., one of my favorite examples is quarters and dimes were silver when I was a kid, right? They are not silver now. I mean, it's just unthinkable that they could be made out of silver. And pennies were made out of copper, and it now is more valuable to melt the pennies and get access the so-called intrinsic value of money that people are always saying Bitcoin does not have. Uh, but it's actually now a felony to melt money in the United States and punishable by five years in prison. So there really isn't, well, there is intrinsic value in, in, in metal money in the United States, but it's illegal to access it. Is, is it in Canada they got rid of the pennies? Oh, I, I don't know. Yeah, there's one place I got rid. Of, they got rid of the penny. Somebody told me because it cost more than a penny to make a penny. So yeah, and they they were round. I'm trying to remember. I'm pretty sure maybe it was Canada. Well, yeah, no, it's funny. <clears throat> nickels, uh, the five cent coin in the United States, are obviously used to be made out of nickel, but they are no longer made out of nickel because uh, the nickel's worth more than five cents. Next up, I talked to Dan more about Pantera's Bitcoin thesis. But before that, I got a message from my amazing sponsors. And today we're going to kick off with sportsbet.io, the best place for online gaming, because guess what? They accept Bitcoin. Also, amazing, as they have confirmed, we are going to be running that competition. I know I've been telling you about it for quite some time. We've got a Lambo that's going to be given away. But also, I've added an extra Bitcoin edge to it, which I've been talking to them about. 
hold on. It's coming very, very soon. Now, with Sportsbet, you have every market you could possibly be interested in. They have football, tennis, US sports, motorsports. They even have esports. And for you new customers out there, they've always got a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, just head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. And then next up, we have Exodus Wallet, who I've been using as my mobile and desktop wallet for managing my Bitcoin related to running my business. And somebody reached out to me and said, well, what is it you're actually doing, Pete? How are you using it to run your business? Well, we used to get to the end of the month and my accountant was always like, Pete, who's this Bitcoin from? Who's this Bitcoin going to? And I was always like, oh, well, I don't know. I'll just take a guess and should be really pissed off at me. But with Exodus Wallet, I just use the advanced feature to keep notes on payments. So at the end of the month, I can go, here you go. You don't have to winch at me anymore. Here are all the notes for all the payments. So it's been super useful for doing my audits at the end of the month, but it's just a really cool and easy to use app. So if you want to find out more and check it out, please head over to exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores, which is E-X-O-D-U-S. And finally, today it's Casa, the very best in Bitcoin security. Now, if you are sat on a decent stack of Bitcoin and you aren't custody in it, or you have it all on a single wallet, it's probably time for you to consider Casa. And I know what you are thinking, do I need this? It's going to be a pain to set up. Maybe some of you are thinking, what the hell is a multi-sig wallet? It doesn't make any sense to me. I know I had all the same questions, but honestly, it can be easier to set it up once you've done it. Once you've got it over with, you have so much peace of mind. And I'm coming up to nearly a year of being a customer, and I'm not switching out. No chance. Now, a multi-sig wallet allows you to custody your Bitcoin, but only move by signing transactions from multiple wallets, ones which you distribute into different locations, protecting you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. If you want to ask me about this, you can reach out to me on email or DM on Twitter. I'll tell you about my experience. Also, I've got a competition running with Casa. Sorry, I was meant to announce it the other day. I will be announcing it today. It will be going out on Twitter. A chance for you to win a Casa multi-sig solution. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. And if you want to find out more, head over to keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. How do you think this plays out? Is this just going to be a short deflationary event whereby the government's going to print enough money to clear their debt obligations as much as they need and the economy will come back? Or do you think we're seeing some kind of grand change to money here, especially as we have Bitcoin now? Well, that, that's the thing. I, you know, I don't want to make any grand predictions on you know, the future of the debt load of any country or whatever. The only thing I do know is people will start to notice that the, uh, the paper money is being debased and that they need to invest in things that aren't falling in value relative to everything else. And so they're going to pick you know, Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. They're also going to pick gold, real estate, you know, those types of assets. And I think it's, it's no surprise that legendary investors like Paul Jones and Stan Druckenmiller are buying Bitcoin and explicitly referencing that it's like gold in the 1970s because we had quite a bit of inflation in the U.S. in the 1970s and uh, gold did very well um, because it's fixed quantity. Um, there's a fixed number of ounces of gold. So I think that's how it plays out. It's that over time, and it's not like a light switch, you know, where you know, one day the currencies that you and I have grown up with, you know, exist, and the next day they don't exist. It's, it's more of a, you know, slow continuum where currencies like Bitcoin become, you know, popular for people to store their wealth in it. And, you're, you know, obviously you're seeing now even corporations uh, like Tesla and MicroStrategy realizing that if they just keep cash, paper money on their balance sheet, they're going to get zero interest rates and it's going to be depreciating relative to you know, their future expenses, right? In the future, they have to buy plants and uh, metal and uh, all kinds of inputs to their production. And if they have their cash sitting in a depreciating paper currency, it's a bad thing. So they'd rather have it sitting in something or being invested in something like Bitcoin that can appreciate. Did that surprise you during this cycle? Did the, you know, this expansion into you know, companies like Tesla and Square and such put in their uh, uh, corporate treasuries into Bitcoin. Was this something you expected to happen or was it covers the surprise? Oh, um, it's been happening because Square did it three years ago, you know, so um, there are some pretty forward-thinking companies. Uh, I've enjoyed watching it. Uh, MicroStrategy was a billion-dollar 
software company. Now there's seven billion dollar ETF, basically <laughs> Bitcoin <laughs> ETF, uh, and Morgan Stanley and Blackstone own over thirty percent of MicroStrategy stock. Uh, so it's been fun to watch, and obviously Elon Musk, super high profile uh, marketing genius. So you know, buying. 1.5 billion of Bitcoin is, you know, it's, it's both a good investment. Obviously, you and I agree Bitcoin's a good mm-hmm. thing to have on your balance sheet, but it just helps them, you know, stay cutting edge and they accept Bitcoin to buy Tesla now. You know, that's been the dream uh, early. Uh, there's a company BitPay, you know, Tony Gallippi, long time ago, trying to did do uh, some kind of transaction where somebody bought a Tesla with a Bitcoin because that's marrying kind of the two, uh, you know, most kind of meme oriented things of the last. 10 years. Well, it looks it looks good for obviously for micro strategy. Uh, Michael Saylor looks like a genius. He's you know, massively increased the uh, massively expanded the value of the balance sheet for micro strategy and it, and even Tesla. It looks like a really great investment. Um, depending on how the cycle works, so there could be companies who make similar bets perhaps towards the end of the year and they end up sitting on that Bitcoin during a drawdown. Do you think that presents any kind of risks or, or for the companies f- for doing that and timing it wrong? Because look, we understand Bitcoin, but you and I are you know, we're we're in this for multi years. You know, we've been in for years. We we've got time on our side because our investments are already ahead of themselves, and we've got that patience. But you know, perhaps a company would put some money of their from their balance sheet into Bitcoin, and would they need it in two years and during a drawdown? Do you think this, that presents some risks to company with timing? It, it certainly does. Uh, but most of these companies are putting a fraction of 1%, like Square did, or you know, low single digits. And so if Bitcoin went down 50%, you know, it's still a very small fraction of their balance sheet. So you know, although you and I are very bullish on Bitcoin, you know, I would never suggest the company put all their assets into Bitcoin. Feels like MicroStrategy have put nearly all of theirs on. You know, they're going for it. There you go. <laughs> um, so... Back on some of the Bitcoin stuff, um, there's a few things I do want to ask you about. Uh, we, we're starting to see this transition as well during this cycle, and I think this comes back to your kind of coming come in of age idea, whereas the banks previously you know, had been pretty hostile towards Bitcoin, and now we've seen a number of banks showing interest in Bitcoin. We've got MasterCard and Apple Pay showing interest in Bitcoin as well. What do you think the transition is here? Why do you think this has happened? Oh, you know, legacy businesses always... Uh, you know, are slow to want to adopt disruptive new technologies. It's, you know, it's happened with every uh, new technology. So um, it's not surprising that they didn't rush in. But, um, you know, cryptocurrency blockchain is definitely very disruptive, definitely here to stay. You have central banks building on them now. So it's, you know, it's obviously very legitimate. It's going to be here forever. So they have to address it at some point. And they're always just doing the trade-off between you know, any kind of brand reputational risk or cannibalizing their current businesses versus trying to stay, you know, uh, offering the products their their clients want. And, you know, five or six years ago, not that many people cared about Bitcoin. So it was very easy for a legacy finance firm to ignore it. And 10 years from now, I think everyone with a smartphone is going to be using cryptocurrency. So we're in this kind of middle period where companies, you know, can kind of choose whether to get engaged. Uh, and you're seeing that, uh, you know, a good example is Visa is now using USDC and Circle to move money around. And that's really, really a cool use case for uh, blockchain. Has your, uh, your phone been off the hook for the last six months? Are you seen a lot of uh, people you've maybe tried to persuade previously or talked about Bitcoin, you know, maybe not so interested now, and, and uh, but but not not interested previously, but now they're like, come on, Dan, what's the deal here, man? Oh, yeah. No, it's, it is it's funny. You know, basically every single person I've ever met wants to talk about <laughs> Bitcoin now, which is great. Um, and, you know, the thing, big high-profile things like Tesla buying Bitcoin and Coinbase going public, it just kind of forces people to address it. And that's what I've seen, in, you know, in my own life. Actually, I, I learned about Bitcoin in 2011 from my brother. And I, I read the white paper and I, I, I'm, you know, some libertarian thoughts in my head. So I'm like, oh, that'd be great if it happened. But I didn't actually do anything. Uh, and it took 18 months to, you know, get around to actually focusing on it and reading about it. And then as soon as I, you know, spent a few weeks reading about it, I was like, oh, wow, this is going to be big. And I think that's really the path all of us go through is that, you know, I guess there's 100 million people using Bitcoin right now, which 
you know, you and I are excited about because that's a lot more than there was, but you know, hundred million people play Candy Crush, right? Like it's not <laughs> that, that big a number, you know? So the more, you know, high profile things that happen that, you know, the more people have to read about it. And I found the, you know, kind of the rate of adoption is, you know, in the 90% range, you know, like when a smart person actually spends a couple of weeks and reads uh, a lot about it, they almost always end up buying some. And then a couple of years later, they are buying lots and they're, you know, really uh, excited about the project. Yeah, are the, are the questions changing? Or is it, are people, yeah, people who are yeah, yeah, sure. questions change. Uh, that's what's really fun is, you know, in the early days, it's all like, you know, what about the Silk Road and there's no custodians and, you know, governments are going to ban it and we already have the dollar. Why do we need another currency? You know, so there was so much of that. And thank God all that's gone. Uh, and even the custodian question is really solved, you know, and that, that was, you know, it's a very legitimate question if you're an institution and you want to invest in the crypto space, uh, you know, four or five years ago, there really wasn't a great answer to, well, who, who's the custodian? So uh, it's nice to have all those questions put away. The ones that you still get are, you know, but what about regulatory uncertainty, um, volatility, you know, still always a question. Um, you know, and then some people really do kind of have a problem with, well, we already have a currency. Why do we need another currency? Uh, and you know, so we can riff on any of those if you want. But, you know, the nice thing is a lot of the old questions are kind of put to bed. And, you know, now we're dealing with some some new questions. Yeah, the, the regulatory uncertainty one is, is kind of interesting. Um, because, for example, here in the UK, we've had our Chancellor announce Bitcoin. I don't know if you saw that, but that's essentially the CBDC they want to launch. And at the same time, we have uh, very little regulatory support for Bitcoin. It's not been outlawed, but derivatives have been banned. And most of the banks, for one reason, one reason or other, the, the the big banks are starting to block people from buying Bitcoin. Uh, I, I lost my bank account. I suspect it's a Bitcoin thing. Uh, I know HSBC, NatWest, and Lloyd's are all pretty hostile to Bitcoin. Not only just not allowing people to transfer money to exchanges, but um, I said to you before we started, they're not allowing people to even buy shares of some companies who are Bitcoin companies. So Coinbase, some people have been banned from buying shares in Coinbase. And that I find like really unusual because I... I don't agree with it, but I understand the point with regards to buying cryptocurrencies because in their head, they've been forced by the government to become essentially law enforcement for some of these things. So they don't want the headache. But I don't understand blocking some an individual, a private individual, wanting to buy shares in a private company. It doesn't make any sense to me. Crypto profiling. Yeah, so um, some entities just have a much higher standard against crypto than they do other things. Um, you know, there's obviously risk in, in all types of securities and assets and cash out there. So yeah, you do see some of that. And so it's declining over time. Obviously, four or five years ago, it was, it was much harsher than it is today. So, uh, you know, commerce will probably smooth all that out. More and more customers will demand it. Um, the, you know, banks and others will have to offer that service to their clients. Well, it seems we're in a different regulatory position here in the UK than than the US. Um, what is your answer then to people with regards to their regulatory concerns? Well, generally across the globe, most countries are neutral on Bitcoin, and like mm-hmm. you said, you know, the UK doesn't really do anything to help Bitcoin, but uh, generally isn't uh, threatening it. And so that's what I've seen in most of the countries that I've worked with is that the governments are, are essentially neutral. Uh, there's a few very progressive governments. Uh, like Luxembourg, they're trying to make their country better uh, for blockchain. Uh, and then there's a couple of countries that have capital controls and are trying to keep their citizens from accessing the global markets uh, that, that you know, are hostile. But most countries are neutral. And in the United States, actually, the agencies have ruled very early on Bitcoin and very favorably. In 2013, the IRS ruled that Bitcoin was property, so you get long-term capital gains tax treatment if you hold it for a year. And the CFTC has always been very progressive. One of the commissioners came out to my house in 2013 for a conference I had with a bunch of the uh, 
uh, people in the Bitcoin community, and they started doing futures in 2017. You've had uh, the OCC allows all nationally chartered banks in the United States to custody crypto. So most of the agencies in the U.S. have, have ruled you know, very favorably. Right, and again, so that- they're not going out of their way to help Bitcoin, but they're certainly not trying to hinder it. Do you think that could? Do you think that could change though? Is it? Is there any part of you that thinks, well, you know, Bitcoin's still not a threat at a trillion dollars, but perhaps at five trillion, we don't know how much gold they uh, the, the government holds because it's kind of it's uh, it's it's a bit unknown. Um, they've never had an audit of the gold, but perhaps if if we saw that transitionary period where perhaps people started moving into Bitcoin outs from gold and the gold price was dropping, that's actually a threat to the gold reserves of the U.S. government. Yeah, so the U.S. government does hold uh, 11 million worker years' wages in gold in a stone pyramid in Kentucky, which is very funny that it's very much like the Egyptian pharaohs that we <laughs> pile of gold under a stone pyramid still. Uh, that I can't imagine anyone in the government really is actively thinking that's a great idea. I mean, obviously, we bought all that gold a long time ago. And the Treasury Secretary and my former colleague Steve Mnuchin did go out to uh, see the, the gold at Fort Knox. Um, so it does exist. Um, so I don't know that any government really thinks it's a great idea. That No government's buying any more gold, right? Like that is definitely not a new idea. And then the, the idea about whether you know, bureaucrats want Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. You know, probably most of them don't. You know, they don't want something new to deal with, some new hassle. But the toothpaste is out of the tube. You can't put it back in. And China is building their own national blockchain. And that is an issue. Is it, uh, you know, the rest of the world can't sit there and just hope blockchain goes away because it's not going away. And... Um, at our last investor summit in 2019, the prior one to the one we had a couple weeks ago, the chairman of CFTC did a speech on China's announcement being America's Sputnik moment in finance. And I think that's a great analog. And for you younger viewers, Sputnik is the Russian space uh, satellite launcher, the, the first launch into space. And the West realized we were way behind on, on the space race and got engaged. And that's basically what's happening here. The United States is six years behind the Chinese in building a central bank digital currency. And it has, you know, very big geopolitical impacts that the U.S. exerts a great deal of control with its sanctions regime. And if there is a payment mechanism that's outside that, um, you know, certain, you know, obviously power will start (laughs) moving uh, that direction. So I think governments are very engaged and there I think there's very little chance that most governments obviously there's going to be an occasional government that has some kind of nationalistic policy that's trying to restrict their citizens from from transferring wealth but uh, most you know free market democracies are you know I think there's almost no chance they do anything negative about cryptocurrency well, what is your read on CBDCs you're a fan do you hate them do you think they're a surveillance nightmare yeah you know, it's hard to hate something that does exist and will exist, right? Like, it's not really a great way to go through life. So central bank digital currencies uh, will exist, uh, and they just do different use cases, right? Um, They are uh, obviously stable, and they're probably more trustworthy than, uh, you know, some projects out there. Uh, But they're stable with respect to paper currency, right? And that's really the the trick, is that... um, Paper currencies, you know, devaluing at a rapid rate. So I remember early on, Russia announced they were going to do a bit ruble. And, you know, a lot of people were super excited about that, but like it's going to depreciate at the same rate that the ruble ruble depreciates, right? And um, the US dollar coin is going to have some advantages. Like right now, it takes three hours to send money across Wall Street. Uh, Fedwire takes three hours. And, um, if I want to send money to the UK, it takes a few days. Um, so uh, US dollar coin would be great. You know, Within a few seconds, I can send dollars to the UK or I can send dollars across Wall Street. But if they keep printing lots of paper dollars, the, the, the blockchain dollars are going to go down just as fast. So 
you know, I think it's going to hasten, uh, you know, kind of the world's adoption of blockchain technology if, if central banks launch their own version of digital currency. It's going to credentialize the space. It's going to get more people in the space. But, uh, and so the, my view is uh, it's going to make the pie much bigger. And obviously they're going to get a slice and then private projects like Facebook's uh, blockchain are going to get a slice and then, you know, Bitcoin's going to get its slice and then ETH, Polkadot, whatever. Uh, but as you grow that pie to three and a half billion people, you know, even Bitcoin slice is going to get a lot bigger. True, but do you not do you not worry about CBDCs uh, and the kind of the impact upon privacy? I mean, it's having the complete control of our money by the government who can switch off our accounts, censor our accounts, take money from our accounts. Does does that not worry you? Oh no, it does, and everyone's going to vote with their wallets, right? They're going to decide: yeah. do they want to use the Chinese central bank digital currency, or do they want to use U.S. central bank digital currency, or do they want to use Bitcoin or Zcash? Right? Like everyone's going to get to decide where do they want to dial their privacy in. Yeah. All right. Last thing I wanted to ask you about because I want to get your read on this. Um, where are you at with regards to ETFs? I know you're pretty plugged into. Uh, the financial system. Where are you at with uh, regard to ETFs? Do you think they're we're getting closer? Yeah, so when we launched the first crypto fund in the US, we looked at ETFs, we looked at all kinds of structures, and we picked launching it as a normal hedge fund, but with daily liquidity, uh, because we thought it'd be a while until an ETF was approved. That was eight years ago, so it's been a very long time. The previous chairman of the SEC was very negative about uh, Bitcoin, and one of the two reasons for denying an ETF was that the supposed market manipulation. And I've traded on Wall Street for 35 years. I've seen some really strange things. Bitcoin is not manipulated in any, any way remotely similar to all these other markets. Uh, for the very fact that it's just so massive, Bitcoin trades $70 billion a day on hundreds of exchanges in dozens of countries. There is nothing big enough to manipulate that. There's no like Dr. Evil from James Bond that's big enough to throw $70 billion around and manipulate a market that is just so massive. Uh, and by contrast, a good example would be GameStop. Prior to the insanity, it was trading $70 million a day on one exchange in one country with you know, these so-called uh, free trading apps able to turn their customers on or off, you know, arbitrarily. Those are manipulatable, right? And those are allowed. And then also um, at our investor summit, which should be up on our website soon, uh, we have a speech with, uh, or a uh, fireside chat I had with uh, SEC Commissioner Hester Pierce. And she's been making the point, you know, she's great. very well. She's great. That there is a double standard. It is crypto profiling that, the SEC is holding Bitcoin to this incredibly high standard, which, I, again, I don't even... When they say market manipulates, I literally don't know what they're talking about. Mm. The market is so liquid and so deep. Um, and uh, on the flip side, they've approved things like platinum and palladium, which uh, when I was a Tiger Management, we used to be very active traders in that. And there's a couple huge Russian companies that you know have exerted a lot of influence, it would be the word I'd use, on the pricing of those metals. Bitcoin's way safer and way uh, clearer. And then the last point I'd make is uh, when you try and repress something, it doesn't work. They, people always find a way to do it. And so instead of buying an incredibly transparent and incredibly regulated ETF, people are buying like MicroStrategy and like, you know, a Long Island Bitcoin company, whatever, no. you know, like all these crazy people are investing via really weird. Uh, ways to get exposure to Bitcoin. It just seems if we actually are trying to protect, you know, the a normal uh, retail investors out there, let's have a very regulated Bitcoin ETF. It's just the safest way to let people get invested. Yeah. All right, Dan. Well, listen, it's always good to talk to you. Always appreciate your time. Um, I'm following your 115 target. Uh, have you got any? Have you have you done any predictions for your end of year target? Oh yeah, so uh, that's that's fun. My prediction is 
Bitcoin will be 213% higher a year from now. <laughs> I've been saying that for eight years. A year from that's now. That's just it. Yeah, from- it, that's its 10-year compound annual growth rate. Mm-hmm. And so... You just stick it's with been that. Doing it for ten, ten, yeah, it's been doing it for 10 years. Uh, mm-hmm. All the fundamentals seem fantastic. You've got you know, Morgan Stanley and PayPal and all these people helping uh, you know, lots of wealthy people get invested. So that puts it at 200000 a year from now. And I know it sounds crazy, but I, I think it's likely to happen. Well, if it's a 200,000 a year from now, that'd be great. And we can get on and we can talk about it. Well, hopefully we can do the next one in person. Hopefully we'll be flying by then. So oh, I would crossed. love to do that. It'd be great to yeah, uh, man. do it in person. All right. Well, listen, good to talk to you. Appreciate everything you're doing. I love my updates I get from Pantera. I've never joined one of the calls, but I think I might join one of the calls soon. But I uh, appreciate all the updates I get through from uh, the company. Uh, I was watching some of your videos this morning. I was, uh, is it the CNN one where you... Got back on with the guy you've spoken to. I've got it here. Oh, I love that one. That's one of my favorites of all that time. That guy. Oh, my God. That He's guy. one of the rarest animals on Earth, a supposedly intelligent academic that's super negative on Bitcoin. So yeah, but it's, once yeah, they it's get there, who, who yeah. changes their mind? Like, they never really change their mind. Like, they, once they put their stake in the ground, they kind of stick with it, and Bitcoin gets higher. And I, I think it's a psychological thing. I think it's too hard for them to, to turn around and say they were wrong. Very few change their mind. Yeah, and you know, pundits don't pay the negative carry of being short, right? Like, you mm. know, you can say I hate Bitcoin when it's at a low price and it goes up. It doesn't cost you anything. But I'd love to find somebody who's actually short. Yeah, yeah. All right, Dan, well, look, keep crushing it. Good to talk to you, and I'm sure I'll speak to you soon. Great. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. How bullish was that one? More bullish predictions from the veteran traders. Gotta love it. Helps with the diamond hands during those big dumps. Now, the predictions are all over the place this year. We have Plan B's 288K, Dan calling for 115K by the summer, Willy Woo saying we might break 300K, some lunatic who's been DMing me telling me we're going to be over a million dollars. Who knows what will happen, but it's going to be a pretty exciting year. I do remember, though, back in 2017, the calls for 33K by July, which never happened, and I got caught up in that excitement. So... Let's, uh, let's try and get some sense behind these models. And you know what? I think, I think Dan does it. I think Pantera have some sense behind their models. And it's a good reason not to get caught up in the chop. Ignore the shakeouts and hodl your Bitcoin. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Dan. We will be back tomorrow for my first of my monthly installments with Dan Held. So make sure you come and check that out. In the meantime, if you've got any feedback, please do either jump into our Telegram channel or you can hit me up on hello at whatbitcoindid.com. If you want to support the show, the other thing you can do is head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. Hopefully you think the show deserves five stars. Maybe you think it's shit. Are you going to leave me one star? Who knows? Anyway, please go and leave me a review. Outside of that, have a cracking week, and I will see you tomorrow with another show. Bye.